Hey everybody, Joe here from the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. If you enjoy what we do here on the show and you think it's worth your hard-earned money, you can support the show via Patreon. Just a $1 donation gets you access to bonus episodes, our Discord, and regular episodes before everybody else. If you donate at an elevated level, you get even more bonus content. A digital copy of my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, and a sticker from our Teespring store. Our show will always be ad-free and is totally supporter-driven. We use that money to pay our bills, buy research materials that make this show possible, and support charities like the Kurdish Red Crescent, the Flint Water Fund, and the Halo Trust. Consider joining the Legion of the Old Crow today. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to yet another lovely episode of the Lines Led by Donkeys podcast. I am Joe, leading the group of tired and sick people that are on the show today. I think I have dysentery. <laughs> yes. Well, it's, it's very thematic. It, it kind of is. I have two thirds of the Well, There's Your Problem podcast here today. How's it going, guys? Fuck you, man. That's how it's going. That's the energy that I want to bring brought to the podcast. I have a headache. It seems to be dissipating. Uh, what, the headache's dissipating? I think the headache's dissipating, yeah. Are you hungover or do you just have a headache? Oh, I'm hungover. Oh, word. So someone kept me too late last night playing Railroads Online. <laughs> that wasn't me. Is that like a railroad-based MMO? It's MO, but it's not MMO. Was it you know? Zorik? I think you can, it was not Zorik. It was uh, the guy from Train Pictures with Chaotic Auras. Oh, that guy? <laughs> it's yeah. an outstanding account. Many people don't know this, but kind of like head on, if you apply podcast directly to the forehead, it cures head headaches. Uh, and that is yeah. approved by the FDA. I can say oh, that. Wow. Yeah. And here comes the lawsuit. Dude, it's not approved by the FDA to treat any medical condition. We've got to be fine. Yeah, it's fine. It's good. You know, it also is not approved by the FDA. Uh, the charge of the light brigade. Um, I don't know how to segue into that today. That was awful. Beautiful. That's a beautiful segue. Fucking silky smooth, right? Yes. I was going to say something about dysentery and typhus, um, but, you know, I don't feel like there's a cure for those either. Mother's, mother's little helpers. <laughs> yeah. Not FDA approved. Being shot at. Yeah. <laughs> Getting the orders wrong. This is why I just, like, constantly taint my own drinking water with my own poop. Uh, that wa- that way, oh, I'm pointing, Joe. I never get typhus or dysentery, right? Like, I'm bulletproof. Anyway, let's uh, go back to literally any time I've traveled anywhere where I get dysentery. You got to adopt the Liam Anderson diet, Joe. Now, that's Johnny Walker Black Label and Guinness, because I know what those taste like. <laughs> I do have to say, recently when I was in Armenia, someone warned me that the tap water would fuck my stomach up, and it didn't. So, it feel like I feel like my, my system is working. <laughs> There's a reason this uh, this episode of this topic has been requested like countless times. It's not quite our Tacoma Narrows Bridge, but it's close. <laughs> I feel like our Tacoma Narrows Bridge is Stalingrad at this point, though I do plan on doing that eventually. Uh, I've been saying that now for three years. We did Tacoma Narrows, man. It only took us two years. <laughs> <laughs> And the reason for that is there's a kind of a through line to this podcast, and that is you can win a war with good soldiers and good leadership, and it's very hard to win a battle with only 50% of those things. So that, that brings us to what has to be one of the worst command decisions in popular military history, because it's not like 
egregiously terrible. It doesn't even kill that many people, but it's a legendary failure that somehow got turned into an act of heroics because soldiers are sometimes too stupid to ask questions. Now, that is what brings us to the Charge of the Light Brigade. But of course, the Charge of the Light Brigade did not happen in a vacuum, which means we kind of have to talk a little bit about the war, that is the Crimean War, which began in 1853, and also how the fuck we ended up there, because it's one of those wars that nobody's really sure why it happened, because it didn't have to. <laughs> this is the long and short of it. What a theme we'll never see again, goddammit. Not until next week. Yeah. Um, those, those Crimeans have mobile chemical weapons labs. Yes. You got to go yeah, in and get them. Colin Powell. Yeah. <laughs> Credit where credit's due. Colin Powell was a trendsetter. He was a trailblazer because, you know, he covered up his first war crime and he didn't stop there. No, no, no. He decided he could break on through and lie into an entire war. And that's an energy that not many people have. And I have a feeling we will talk about him significantly more whenever we eventually cover Milai. <laughs> it's not good, folks. Uh, it's not good. Don't name anything after him. He sucks. Yeah, unfortunately, it's going to come out in like three weeks and the news articles are going to pass, but whatever. He'll still be dead, Joe. That is true. Th- th- we both hope so. Yeah, I was about to say, unlikely he comes back to life. <laughs> yeah. We'll get one of those nice lead-lined Afghan war caskets. Yeah, you get get to bolt him in to be safe. He's going to punch his way out of the earth and feast for Iraqi blood. You got to drive a stake through his heart. Um, Oh, it just feels like we're being racist. (laughs) Vampires aren't racist. (laughs) Settle down there, Armenia. I was about to say, I don't usually associate... uh, Well, I, I I guess there was Blackula. Um, that's a black vampire, but there's not too many of them. No, Doctor Acula. I'm pretty sure there's only one movie about it. I mean, was there like, do we have a a a, expo, a black exploitation extended universe that we're unaware of? Well, there's <laughs> got to be, right? Coming from Marvel next year. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, eventually they're going to run out of topics, and they're going to have no choice. They're already down to the Eternals. Nobody gives a shit about them. I don't yeah. know what the fuck the Eternals is. Nobody I'm, does. I'm, I'm, Everybody just knows it as the movie is that guy melted his face for with HGH. Oh, no. <laughs> now, the Crimean War, like many other wars, pretty much boils down to inbred people beefing over turf with a little bit of the sick command of Europe thrown in. It was one of several wars between the Ottoman Empire and the Russian Empire. And at this point of history, the Ottoman Empire is fully in the death throes of the sick man of Europe phase. Uh, without going too far into the weeds here, because depending on who you ask, the sick man phase lasted like hundreds of years. Um, and I'm not going to talk about all of that. Do you want to cheer for the Ottoman Empire? No, because I know how the story ends, unfortunately. Yeah, that's fair. All right. <laughs> all right. All right. Disregard. Moving on. Now, various nationalities were figuring out this entire empire situation in the greater Ottoman Empire area. Kind of sucked ass and wanted their freedoms. At least for some of them, uh, some people like the minorities of the Ottoman Empire were not like a monolith. Not everybody was fighting for independence. There were some like the various Balkan countries in Greece. And there's a few others that had armed insurrection rebellion while also saying like, hey, we just kind of want to run our own affairs within the imperial framework. And that's actually where Armenians were at the time. Um, they're like, look, we kind of know what happens and we don't have you guys protecting us. So like, we just kind of want our own parliament and you don't charge us more in taxes because we're Christian. That'd be great. This became to be known somewhat grimly as the Eastern question, a phrase that is famously not problematic. Hey buddy. (laughs) Fancy seeing you here. Now this question, it boiled down to Imperial fears. 
Now, remember, for hundreds of years, uh, the Ottomans had been fighting the Russians, and the two shared a border because, you know, they both expanded east and west. Other European powers would fight the Ottomans. They would also fight the Russians because this is the part of history where other Europeans don't actually think Russians are European um, because racist reasons. Like a good example is France seizing Algeria from the Ottomans uh, in 1830, uh, another place where France would not famously go on to do horrible things. Now, these same powers eventually came to fear the power of Russian expansion combined with the weakening of the Ottomans. Like the idea was like without the check of the Ottoman Empire, we're going to have to go duel with the Russians more often. And we really don't want to do that. So the Eastern question was like, how the fuck do we duct tape the Ottoman Empire back together to fight the Russians? While also, if they do collapse entirely, what do we get out of it? It's not good. (laughs) There's a lot more to it than that, but that's kind of like the too long. Didn't I prefer read. to call it diplomatic realism. Yes, but also no. Um, like uh, it was imperialism with extra steps because it wasn't like who's going to no, get independence. No, it's always imperialism yeah. with extra it, steps. Of course it is. Sometimes they're just called think tanks. It's different. Brookings, you sick <laughs> son of a bitches. Now, the reason why this question came to be is the French and the British specifically were pretty pissed that this whole crumbling could occur without them being able to take what they wanted. Not to mention, like, they wanted to take what they chose to be part of their empires or satellites or whatever, but they also wanted to prop up the shambling corpse of the Ottoman Empire to deal with the Russians, to be a buffer. It was everybody in the West's best interest that something resembling the Ottomans, because the concept of modern Turkey does not exist yet. Um, That is not a thing. So, um, and, and either is Azerbaijan, I need to point out. Is it on topic? No, but... You know, do what I do. <laughs> they were Ottoman Turks. Uh, and before then, they were the Seljuks and th- things like that. It was never Turkey. But they wanted the proper, like, nail together a scarecrow that looked like the Ottoman Empire that could keep the Russians from spreading <laughs> into Europe. Right. Strangely enough, someone who actually supported this tactic was a guy named Karl Marx. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> go, Ross. <laughs> and in what has to be one of the greatest ironies in history that he would, of course, not live to see is that he was worried about what he called Russian absolutism spreading across Eastern Europe. <laughs> oh, that's crazy how that wow. works. Well, you know, later on, that did happen, but it was for communism. So it was good. Jesus Christ, man. Let me click on this page called Russian Chauvinism. (laughs) Congratulations, Roz. You're actually the villain of Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3. (laughs) I feel like it's better to be the villain of those games. Oftentimes, there's there's really no difference. Russian expansionism at the time was under the guise of the so-called Holy Alliance, which is a grouping of Russia, Prussia, and Austria after the final defeat of Napoleon. The first, of course, in 1815. Uh, the other Napoleons, not so noteworthy until his idiot uh, family member, Napoleon III, who would get tricked into uniting Germany. <laughs> Whoops. Whoopsie-doodle. Eh, happens to us all. Yeah. yeah. Well, he's also uh, the guy who tried to create the uh, the Mexican Empire with a German guy as the emperor. He's a joy. Also redid Paris. Yeah. Uh, he he redid all the Aaron Dismonts to make it easier to crush rebellion. Yes. <laughs> That's fun. Now, the Alliance's goal is to make sure none of this revolutionary bullshit, as far as the French Revolution, ever occurred again. Damping down concepts of liberalism and secularism, wherever they reared its head to uh, you know, challenge the inbred power structure of European monarchy, but also, more importantly, to keep the balance of power laid out in the Treaty of Vienna. 
Now, if you're pointing out that expansionism kind of flies in the face of a concept of a balance of power, you'd be right. Don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't worry so about that. It's right here on the paper. Don't worry about that. Yeah. It's crossed out an initial next to it. Russia played the shit out of the alliance because when they signed it, they were the most powerful part of it. During the revolutions of 1848, more specifically the Hungarian Revolution, Russia helped Austria stamp the shit out of that as long as they let them do whatever they wanted with the Ottomans. You know, the alliance said, sure, fuck it. Why not? We don't care. And that would change because Russia kind of got way too big and powerful on the outside. This is helped by the fact that Russia had long since considered itself the great protector of Orthodox Christianity. Yeah. Uh, A ton of Orthodox Christians lived under Ottoman rule as second-class citizens known as Dimi. Uh, These people would pay more in taxes. They couldn't have certain jobs and were mostly barred from civil service, though that tended to be somewhat fluid depending on who you knew. Like, for instance, at one point, there was an Orthodox Armenian minister of foreign affairs somehow, but, like, things weren't good. (laughs) (laughs) It's fun to hear this. Yeah, which brings us to Britain and France for equally dumb reasons. Of course it does. The Britons never come in for good reasons. No, it's always for something idiotic. And neither is France. Nobody here is acting under good faith on behalf of the Christian population of the Ottoman Empire to include the Ottomans. Everyone here sucks. Well, at least we're consistent, right? Yeah. The British were worried about the Russian Navy gaining power, made easier by warm weather port in Crimea. But the true idiocy of the moment belongs to Napoleon III, as we have already kind of explained how dumb he was. Wow, that's a new one. (laughs) He's truly one of history's greatest idiots. France was Catholic and asserted sovereign authority over all Christians in Palestine, Catholic or not Catholic, which, of course, pissed off Russia. To further his goals, Napoleon III appointed Marquis Charles de Levey, sorry, uh, as ambassador to the Ottoman Empire, which controlled Palestine. So, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. France, despite not holding Palestine, it's just like, oh, yeah, we're the protectorate of all Christians in the territory we don't control. Yes. Even though we're Catholic. Cool. 100%. Fun. That's France, baby. Hell yeah. (laughs) This is where I get to tell you it gets much, much dumber. Of course it does. Hit me with it, Joe. Russia pointed (laughs) out that they had already signed a treaty about 100 years before with the Ottoman Empire that made them the protectors of Christians in the Ottoman Empire. So the Sultan... Well, they're the wrong kinds of Christians. (laughs) Uncertain the Russians would enforce the treaty or not, began hedging bets and kicked out the French. (laughs) So now the Russians are in charge of Christians within the Ottoman Empire. Oh, boy. Okay. Why exactly do they need a protector in the first place? I, I don't know. Can these people not advocate for themselves? Hell no. no. They, I mean, <laughs> so there's there's layers. Um, now, the most humanitarian version of this would be, no, they could not advocate for themselves. And there had been large-scale pogroms already. There's a lot of Ottoman violence against Christian minorities. However, it was mostly imperial creep. They wanted to control the Christian population to put agents in these areas that would kind of sort of slowly bleed over and be like, well, we already control these areas of the Christians in it. Why not make it Russia? Um, Because especially in Eastern Ottoman Empire, the population is overwhelmingly Orthodox Christian uh, or uh, apostolic, uh, especially in places like the Balkans and things like that. So like Russia could very easily just kind of slide in, be like, well, we already kind of control you. So we're just going to annex that. Just, Just come on in here and just, oh squeeze on now Uh, let me let me just borrow this (laughs) yeah 
I mean, that's effectively what the French did in Vietnam uh, when they colonized Indochina, which was like they sent in Catholic right. missionaries who then got attacked and like, well, our missionaries are being attacked. We just sent in soldiers. And then before you know, like, it's Indochina now. Who could have foreseen this outcome? Yeah. Not me, guy who designed this outcome. <laughs> yeah, but but consider if if they hadn't done that, we wouldn't have delicious banh mi's. So, I mean, the sandwich would it's, still, in fact, exist. Yeah, really? Ross, that's, that's, yeah, yeah. Probably. I mean, wow. although I I I'm not in total disagreement with your point, Ross. <laughs> <laughs> Embarrassingly <laughs> enough, <laughs> food imperialism. The bright side. I mean, that's the reason why, like, a curry is one of the main staples of the British diet. Yes. <laughs> We're kidding. It's not a good thing. Don't do that. <laughs> but if you're going to do that, bring back good food. <laughs> so this is why nobody ever colonized Britain. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, I don't, I don't know that I'm, I'm that crazy about fish and chips that I'm going to go and die for it. Or like uh, Russia. Curry, on the other hand. That's actually why Operation Sea Lion was called off. Hitler was like, oh, I have to eat that for the rest of my days? Oh, no. God, no. He said that. I was like, what the fuck is toad in the hole? We're staying on this side. <laughs> Blood pudding? Ew. <laughs> Nine. <laughs> that, that's actually why Napoleon turned around when he invaded Russia. He's like, this shit sucks. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> now, uh, Napoleon III then got mad that, of the old switcheroo and dispatched some ships <laughs> to threaten the Ottomans and Russians simultaneously, which violated a different treaty they had signed known as the London Straits Convention, which had been signed by every power in Europe not to dispatch warships into the area. Despite the fact that only Russia seemed to care, like nobody was mad this convention was violated because they didn't imply to them. It only applied to Russia or the Ottomans and nobody cared about the Ottomans. Now, this warship was enough to scare the Ottomans into once again switching sides and accepting the French as the protectors of Christians within the empire. At this point, you can imagine Russia's pretty upset. For one, they had a treaty which was then violated by the French and the Ottomans. So they forced them to listen, which was then switched again. At this point, they just can't win. Uh, it really seems like the, there, there's, like, there's camps in the government who are pro-Russia and pro-Europe. And most people are pro-Europe because they've been fighting the Russians forever. So, like, we can't fucking trust these people. Let's tr- let's trust these French people over here. Famous oh, last words, right? That's oh, that's the last boy. move you're ever going to make. <laughs> Not good. Now, at this point, Russia was very pissed off. But the main tipping point was the new treaty confirmed the Catholic Church's supreme authority over all holy places within the empire, which had been previously held by the Orthodox Church and things that like were worshipped by uh, Orthodox believers, like the Church of the Nativity. Like now this is all Catholic. And they're like, wait a minute, that's fucked, uh, which it is. But also none of this is your territory. Go home. Like <laughs> Now, this is enough to get Russia's Tsar Nicholas, the final Tsar boss's dad, to deploy his soldiers to the banks of the Danube River as, as an actual threat to Ottoman territory. Oh, good. Yeah. While this was happening, Old Nick tried to smooth some things over with Britain, trying to keep them out of it, hoping to keep this between Russia and France, telling them he didn't want to take over the empire. No, of course not. He simply insisted that he had a job to protect the Christian population in the country, and clearly the Catholics weren't going to do a good enough job of this. I mean, you could largely argue that's not incorrect. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Catholics doing a subpar job. That's crazy. And meanwhile, like the modern day Russian Orthodox Church is just like an old guy Louis with a six crimes. foot. Yeah, like an old guy with a six foot long beard, eight Rolexes and doing a burnout in a Bentley. <laughs> <laughs> Which the idea, I mean, right, if you're gonna if you're gonna be a be a corrupt like GTA five character, 
Uh, yeah. There's more of a Saints Row thing, I think. Uh, oh, <laughs> Ooh, I like it. There's a, there's a single like Russian Orthodox church in Yerevan, despite the fact there's a very, very, very little Russian Orthodox population there. And it is like the largest, most gaudy fucking thing you've ever seen in your life. Like it's like this featureless gray building, both gigantic golden Onion spires. Dumps. Onion <laughs> yeah, that's the one, uh, the one in my neighborhood. Because we have every Orthodox flavor known to man in my neighborhood uh, in Philly. There's the absolutely massive Ukrainian Orthodox Cathedral, the beautifully painted Ukrainian Catholic Cathedral, and then there's like the Russians have one shoved in on like North Fifth, and a girl was walking by it in front of me and Corinne, and she said, "Oh my God! Like, what kind of church is that?" And I was like, "The Onion Domes." The fuck, like you've never like basil's anything. Like you don't know what a fucking onion dome is. <laughs> <laughs> you engineering plebe. Now at this point, uh, the the Russians very nearly managed to get an official protectorate over twelve million Orthodox Christians in that country, which would have taken over swaths of the eastern portion of the empire. Something that, if it went through, would have literally changed the course of history. Uh, this would have changed like the the entire tapestry of World War One. It probably would have stopped about three genocides from happening. You know, possibly. I mean, the Russian Empire doesn't, and then the Soviets don't exactly have the greatest track record on those two things, no. but slightly better than the Ottomans. <laughs> Low bar here. Yeah. The only thing that really stopped the Sultan from signing this deal, effectively giving away all of the eastern portion of the Ottoman Empire, was the British demanding that they didn't. And he's like, all right. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> so after being cock-teased with a massive addition to the Russian Empire, he just invaded the Danube principalities and took them over. And the Russian and French sent in warships and troops, reasoning that he, they had, in fact, invaded the Ottoman Empire, which like they did, but also they were semi-sovereign principalities. They were part of the Ottoman Empire. It's, it's kind of like how... Uh, Puerto Rico is part of the United States, but they're not. We're not really willing to give them all the rights in the world, right? Once they get invaded, in which case USA, baby, number one. <laughs> the, exactly. <laughs> Almost as soon as Russia tipped the scales towards war, things began working against them. Russia assumed that, like during the revolutions before, Austria, Prussia, all these people would help them, like they had previously in Hungary. But instead, Austria sided with the British because they really didn't like the idea of Russia getting that close to them. Um, and also taking over the Balkans, which is definitely their goal. Realizing they'd kind of overplayed their hands in this situation, uh, the Russians withdrew their soldiers out of the principalities, which were then occupied by Austria, as well as quite possibly the biggest fuck you in the entire war. This oh. meant the entire purpose of this war going forward was now moot. The principalities have been evacuated. The Russians backed off, kind of like the War of 1812 in the US. Like The whole point of the war was kidnapping sailors for war and then by the time the war actually started it was they didn't do that anymore but like well we've already got all of our <laughs> already got everybody started. dressed up you know <laughs> but the british decided now that you know strike while the iron's hot type thing is to make sure that you know we already got all these warships and soldiers everywhere we might as well make sure the russians couldn't fuck with the ottomans ever again and continue on with the war anyway and it became clear that russia had seriously fucked up most people had thought of them as very strong. Their navy was shit, as is throughout most of history. Quite honestly, the Russian navy is historically not, a joke. Not so good, yeah. Um, but their army and artillery and cavalry and all these things were, they were still fresh in everybody's mind from the, the last war against Napoleon the first. 
like they were huge. They were like one of the main fighting forces in that war. They destroyed the Grand Army, you know. Unfortunately, they really haven't changed since then. And that was 1815. The army, by and large, was virtually unchanged from the one that had driven Napoleon from the motherland about 40-odd years before. And that army was badly behind the times. The most up-to-date things they had had been taken from the French because they were much newer than what the Russians had at the time. Oh, good. Every piece of equipment they had was older than dog shit and hardly worked. Not to mention, we always talk about uh, uh, going camping with 100,000 of your pals in the 1800s was a bad idea. Because it spreads disease um, because people are worried about like bad humors and shit and they don't understand the concept of germ theory yet. It was especially bad in the Russian military even before the war started. Just pour some vodka on it, man. <laughs> a lot of it was like, I'm not going to go over it all again, but if you go back and listen to our Napoleon in, in, in Russia series, it was most nobles who were the officer corps of pretty much every army at this point didn't care about the well-being of the enlisted men who were normally peasants or draftees. The Russian army was unique in that it seemed like they actively hated them. All right. You've talked about this in, uh, was this uh, Soviet, Afghan? Stuff yeah, like it's that? also kind of a through line through most of Russia. It's a through line, yeah. <laughs> not, not to say, yeah. It very much seems to have a history of just people getting killed for no reason at all. Um, like conscription you know, periods like at the time were so bad. Oh, yeah. The Dodovshina, I think it's called. That yeah. still goes on today. It was so bad in 1815 and also now uh, in the late or mid 1800s here that when a Russian soldier was conscripted, their village would hold like a funeral because they knew he was not coming back. Like a pre-funeral. That's exciting. Yeah. You would serve like 10 to 15 years. Pretty much. Yeah. It's like I kind of want you deep down inside. Every person kind of wonders what their funeral would look like and who would show up. Russian conscripts actually have the ability of knowing that. Which is nice, you know. It's, it's cool yeah. that the Russian VA gives them that option. Russian VA. <laughs> <laughs> now, the disease thing, however, was not completely limited to the Russians. And I can't talk about the extent of disease in the Crimean War because it's actually legendary. Disease during the Crimean War was so goddamn bad. It effectively gave us what we consider the modern practice of nursing. That's right, Florence Nightingale. That is where Florence Nightingale comes from. And she's kind of turned into a folk hero who kind of wasn't so great at her job. Um, <laughs> the most delicious battle of all time. Well, admittedly, Nightingale is more of a complicated character than some people like to think. She did evolve. Uh, most people think that like she came to, uh, I believe it was like Tiraspol or something like that. It was where the main... British field hospitals were in a media like, this is terrible. I need to fix it. So the main British hospital was a place called Scutari. And it was outside of, it was like a suburb of Constantinople. And uh, the hospital is described as, quote, soldiers lay on the ground, their clothes in which they arrived. Many were malnourished and dehydrated because of food and water shortages. The wounded were mixed in with the infected and open latrines helped spread infection. If a soldier didn't have a disease when he arrived, he would certainly catch one in the hospital and die. Mm, tasty. So the hospital is doing the opposite of what it's intended to do. Yeah, that's bad. That's pretty much hospitals at this time and even worse during war. We're going to get a poor review on war Yelp. (laughs) Nightingale believed that sickness among the wounded was largely a result of exhaustion from marching and poor nutrition and said about feeding and treating the wounded. Now... This is good and like to make you feel, but like at least they weren't going to die thirsty and hungry or whatever. However, this actually was a huge vector for disease. Nightingale was not washing her hands, like most people weren't. To be fair, 
and spreading disease from people who, while she was trying to feed and water them. This killed thousands of people. <laughs> and that's how I got typhus. Yeah. Now, there was a military surgeon at Scutari named Dr. James Barry. Now, at the time, being a doctor is more of an on-the-job training type thing. It's a vibe, right? Uh, and you did do yeah. a lot of like medical knowledge in the day. You kind of learned on the fly. And James Barry hypothesized that it was Almost certainly poor sanitation and bad ventilation of the hospital that were responsible for deaths from infectious disease. And he personally criticized Nightingale because she became very popular even in the day that she was very wrong and she was killing patients. Now, thankfully, this got fixed. Nightingale did a 180, but like, you know, she learned, which is, you know, evidence-based medicine, right? Um, that's, yes. that's how medicine is supposed to evolve. But yeah, that's that's as much about Florence Nightingale's. I, I, I had to talk about it because, like, when else am I going to chance to talk about that? But yeah, she was killing people with shitty hands for a while. Ah, uh, shit, poop finger. Yeah, all, everybody had poop fingers. Like, we all had poop finger. <laughs> Everyone had pink eye constantly. Well. <laughs> it's like that scene from Mallrats with the shitty pretzel, but it's like all of human history before like 1905 for the most part. That's gnarly. It's yeah, really gross. Thank you, Joe. Someone down the line, whose name I do not remember, someone will probably tell me, figure out that washing your hands, even without soap before going into a medical theater, like vastly decreased the amount of people who died or, or got infected. And it was considered ungentlemanly to yes. have to wash your hands because gentlemen are always clean, right? Right. But also, would keep uh, basically blood, blood stains on their aprons at the time. As a mark of how good a surgeon they were. Yes. I remember reading that. Um, and then that See, knowledge was... read <laughs> That knowledge was lost because like people rejected it. And then it had to be like rediscovered later on. They're like, maybe we should wash our hands, Pete. But as like someone just like frothing at the mouth from infection. <laughs> the fact that we've survived this long as a species is... I don't know. Uh, fucking. It's, it's a lot of fucking. fucking. Now... There's a lot of different campaigns of the Crimean War, uh, but we're going to jump into the one that gave its name, the Crimean Campaign. No surprise there. Now, the main city that the Allied British and French were gunning for was Sevastopol, and uh, they landed their main invasion force in the north of the city. Uh, now, this is not an amphibious invasion by any stretch of the imagination. Those weren't quite a thing yet. Uh, so you had them using just like gigantic transport ships, transporting tens of thousands of soldiers, which took like a week to unload everything. And because the the, the Russians were bad at their job, they landed completely unopposed. <laughs> Though they learned that like the entire city was was very well defended. Uh, so they had to figure out a way around it. Uh, they ran into Russian trench lines during the Battle of Alma. So they marched everybody into the south around the city uh, to kind of tighten a trench-based noose around the city and lay into a siege, which would be pretty fucking destructive. Um, but as they encircled the city and prepared for the coming siege, the forces got rocked by a wave of cholera. Just absolutely Ooh. fucked by cholera. Oops. Not <laughs> ideal. Um, and it's one of those things that once disease hits a military formation, 10 times out of 10, that formation is gone. Um, um, and we saw that in COVID, in modern times like once one person in the platoon got covid everybody's fucking sick shit spreads quickly and even more when people are very very close together they're not washing their hands nothing like that wash your fucking hands yeah wash your hands i don't want cholera we're gonna do a live event and someone's gonna give me a cholera as a bit <laughs> <laughs> they will do that 
And more importantly, there was just not enough room in the hospitals to pull all these people off the line and not enough healthy soldiers to replace them. So like, well, your color is only kind of bad, so you have to stay out there. A Russian scouting mission actually noticed that when they realized that the Allied lines were mostly staffed with sleeping or half-dead people. And also now typhus was introduced. Oh, good. Oh, boy. <laughs> That's how you win a war, baby. And that brings us to the Battle of Balaclava, which is not the flaky, delicious dessert. Uh, it is, in fact, a battle full of cholera and typhus. Uh, it was in October of 1854, uh, and, they, and the, the Russians' mission was to ride out and destroy the enemy's warehouse, uh, like supply warehouse, which would have forced them to break the siege because they would have to leave. British and French intelligence actually saw this coming, and de- exact details of the plan were delivered to Lord Raglan, uh, full name, and this is true, Fitzroy James Henry Somerset, first Baron of Raglan. We're going to get oh a lot of God. these names in this episode. <laughs> He was in charge of the entire British army on that campaign. At that point, he had been given a lot of false intel reports and kind of like the boy who cried wolf is like, at this point, he's like, yeah, fuck it. I don't care. Um, And then this one ended up being true. Another fun fact about Raglan, despite the fact he is legendarily bad at his job, is he had never once commanded a battle before this, uh, before being put in charge of this entire invasion force. Uh, he his entire claim to fame was being on the staff of the Duke of Wellington at Waterloo. That Waterloo. was it. Uh, and he just kind of coasted on that for a bit, which, like, to be fair, I get. Like, I, I there was a lot of uh, of U.S. Army commanders who really slid on by after World War II because they like they kind of worked for Patton going into the Korean War, and then everybody realized, like, holy shit, this guy's bad his job now. That army included five infantry divisions. Of those four, they were commanded by dudes 60 years or older, and the other one was commanded by the Queen's cousin, who was 35 and never commanded a day before in his fucking life. These guys have an uh, in-depth understanding of tactics, right? That's right. So yeah. old. Yes. Modern tactics, because they've learned that war evolves, right? That's what's going to happen in this battle, right? I mean, it doesn't have to be that modern. They're going against up against the Russians, after all. Well, I mean, um, there, it's somewhat modern to the extent that, like... Slingshots loaded with rocks. <laughs> they should have known, like, full frontal assaults were not a good idea. Especially against, like, things like the hardened target of Sevastopol. Um, but yeah, they didn't. And, like, guns had made a little bit of an evolution. They could fire further, uh, which was also true during the Napoleonic Wars. Like, they were still fighting 50 years before with tactics and using somewhat modern weapons. And then, you know, in 10 years, we would fight the Civil War. 10 years, give or take, we'd fight the Civil War and do the same fucking thing all over again. Now, the two British commanders, Lord George Paget and Lord William Paulette, along with Major Thomas McMahon, were hanging out in a nearby redoubt, and they saw two flags approaching them. Unsure of what they were looking at, but it was actually the battle standard of the Russian army. And they had a little <laughs> bit of a conversation uh, amongst themselves, which thankfully was noted for us to understand. Hello, said Lord William. There are two flags flying. What does that mean? Well, surely that is a signal that the enemy is approaching, said Ma- Major McMahon. Are you quite sure? He replied. Hardly were the words out of McMahon's mouth when a cannon from the redoubt in question fired on the advancing masses of the enemy while they were cut out in the open. <laughs> Womp. <laughs> now, these redoubts were something of, um, there's no nice way to say this other than tripwire or possibly meat shield, because these Ford redoubts guarding the supply areas were commanded and controlled by Ottoman troops. But 
the Ottoman Empire, which was taking part in this war, made sure not to like actually use their crack troops. They wanted to hold those in reserves. They wanted the Europeans to die fighting for them, which like honestly, understandable. Good call. Yeah. But instead, they sent conscripts from Tunisia who had never seen combat and had not been trained. Furthermore, they had not been given any water or food. The British knew these conscripts were almost certainly going to break at the first sign of, of fighting because when you're treated that shitty, you're not going to stick around for very long. And they knew that they would fire a volley or two and then haul ass. They just run. But that would give the British enough time to get their shit together and defend. They were literally a, a tripwire like, oh, the Turks are running. We need to get our shit together. <laughs> and hopefully, if they stick together, they could slow the Russian advance down. Uh, didn't happen, but you know, whatever. Raglan ordered his first and fourth divisions to move on to the field, which were commanded by the Duke of Cambridge. The Duke, who's the commander of the first division specifically, complied immediately, uh, though because it is the mid-1800s, it t- took him about 30 minutes to get his troops moving because you know, everything has to be spread by mouth. You know, word of mouth <laughs> spreads very slowly. Disease. Uh, yeah, other things spread by mouth. <laughs> Typhus. <laughs> <laughs> then there's a guy named Major General Sir George Cathcart, who took much longer to get his troops moving because he's too busy bitching about having to do army stuff, uh, which I can honestly understand it sucks <laughs> uh, he complained that his men had just returned from trench duty and they shouldn't have to do anything mind you they are under attack uh, <laughs> the aide de camp who was aware of the seriousness of the situation had to convince cathcart to obey the order and even then it took him a full fucking hour to get his division to march oh that is a well-disciplined machine baby <laughs> imagine just bitching and moaning as you're under attack by like Literally thousands of rockets. <laughs> it's hot. We it's just got back. I want to go home. I want to go home. It blows. Look, I thought Britain was bad, but Crimea fucking sucks. <laughs> and the food's gross. The food, the food is correct. The Russian cavalry descended upon the Causeway Heights, which overlooked the area, onto the South Valley and advanced for the 93rd Highlanders. Now, their commander, Colin Campbell, first Baron Clyde, uh, ordered his uh, men to lie down on the reverse slope of the hill. Uh, now, this is probably because um, it protects them from incoming artillery. Artillery explodes up and out, kind of like... If one of the things they teach you is if a grenade lands close to you, immediately hit the ground close to the grenade as possible. If you can't run, you'll probably dodge the most damaging of the blast. That's most explosions, assuming they're not, you know, so large, they just evaporate your insides. But also because the horses wouldn't be able to see them, possibly. We don't really know. This could have just been like, let's try this and see what happens. I might be giving him too much credit. I might be giving too much credit. Either way, the Russians did not see them, or they underestimated the brigade's numbers of only about 500. When the Russian cavalry was 900 yards away, Campbell ordered his men forward. Normally, at this point, when an infantry unit is under attack by cavalry, you form a square. A square formation is exactly what it sounds like, but it means that there's bayonets put in every direction, and you can fire outwards, scaring away the horses. No horse is going to charge directly into a bayonet. It literally goes against their brain. They won't do it. So you keep them away. Of the very small things that horses are smart about. Those bastards have it surrounded. (laughs) Terrific. Now we can fire at them from every direction. Yeah, exactly. Famously, during the Battle of Waterloo, this happened as well. Uh, Like, squares fended off a lot of Napoleon's cavalry. But by Campbell's own mission, he decided that he would not call for a square formation because his men were too dumb to pull it off. Uh, They had simply simply not been trained. (laughs) (laughs) 
but they could stand and march in a line without fucking that up, so he went with that. Lieutenant General Ivan Ryzov's 500 cavalry charged the Highlanders, and Campbell ordered, quote, remember, man, there's no retreat from here. You must die where you stand. Now, at this, reportedly, the men just kind of laughed, um, either because they were the toughest motherfuckers on Earth or facing down death had broken their brains just a little bit. Um, and honestly, both could be true. As the horses were charging at them, they only fired off two volleys from their rifles before the Russians decided they didn't want any more of that smoke, turned around and retreated. That's right, bitch. This <laughs> confused the Highlanders deeply. Uh, like nobody thought they actually did that much damage. Uh, but it turned out that Russian cavalry of the day had a tendency to tie themselves to their horses. So they didn't get unmounted. So a lot of the Russians were apparently dead in their saddles and the, the <laughs> Highlanders had no idea. Now, after this, this is like the era of war where there's like journalists put in units for like the first time. So there's there's actually like civilians watching this entire thing happen and writing about it. Um, and a journalist who witnessed the event wrote he could see nothing between the charging Russians and the British regiment's base of operations at Balaclava, but a, quote, thin red streak tipped with a line of steel. This is, unfortunately, where we have to thank for the term, the thin red line. Ugh. Oh, yeah. boy. It used to mean something cool. <laughs> now, at this point, you've heard quite a few stupid command choices, right? Um, you've, you're probably like, why the yeah, fuck would they do this? I'm a co-host on this podcast. Yeah. Generally speaking, the, the, the aristocratic class, despite the fact they have commanded war for thousands of years now, you would have think that these guys, I don't know, would have earned the rank at least. Like, so some idiot noble doesn't just like, I don't know, say, buy his way to be a general. Unfortunately, that is exactly how it worked. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. The British army that the Russians were running into did happen to be made up of some of the, like, the best veteran soldiers in the entire empire. However, they also happen to be led by some of the dumbest motherfuckers to ever be given a commission. And I mean that throughout war. I mean, we've talked about Luigi Cadorna and, and Hodzendorf and all these other people. But like these people, arguably dumber. This is because of the practice of commission purchasing. This meant that anyone, regardless of their military education or lack thereof, could become an officer in the British military if they had enough money or the right connections, which also normally meant they had enough money to have those connections in the first place. What's wrong with that? That's egalitarian, Joe. <sighs> I was about to say, I, I, I feel like it's, it's ableist to expect people to go through <laughs> training to be an uh, officer. Egalitarian, Joe. It, it's a bit sussed for you to believe in a possible meritocracy when it comes to shooting people. <laughs> now, I did find the prices for these ranks uh, and adjusted them for 2019 inflation, since that's the best I could find. Uh, and in 1837, adjusted for 2019 pounds as a cornet, that being the lowest ranked commission officer at the time, uh, in the infantry cost you 41,000 pounds. A cavalry officer was 77,000 pounds and lifeguard a 115,000 pound price tag. Damn. This is not just like a little bit of money. And mind oh, you, like that's serious. Holy shit. And being an officer meant you paid for like you got paid. Like it was just not a lot, but you paid for your uniform. You paid for your weapons. You paid for all. Of, it was considered gentlemanly to do all of these things. Like if you couldn't afford that, simply you didn't deserve it. And like this went up to Colonel, which was half a million pounds cavalry wow. for over half a million pounds and a million for foot guard command, which is like a senior infantry unit from full of veterans. Uh, 
Now, these prices were incremental. If, say, you purchased your way into being a cornet, that did not just mean you'd become a captain based on your merit. You had to buy that rank. You had to pay for every single promotion along the way. That sucks ass. <laughs> yeah. So say you were a cornet and you were a very good cornet, but like you literally hemorrhaged your entire life savings to for that $41,000 or whatever, you would just never get promoted. Like merit promotions were possible, but they were exceedingly fucking rare. Almost everybody in the, in the officer ranks paid for their rank. In order to be promoted, you had to buy the next rank. Now, granted, like it wasn't just offered to the guy with the most money, though sometimes that is what happened. It did go to the, the, the senior most person they thought that could fill that rank, but they still had to pay for it. If you couldn't pay for it, it went to the next guy. It was like buying a used car. Theoretically, a commission could be sold for only its official value and offered to the most next senior officer in that same regiment. But in practice, there's also an unofficial over-regulation price or regimental value. Say like being a colonel in the lifeguard normally would cost you 115,000 pounds or half a million pounds, whatever. But because this particular regiment is so famous, it's actually going to cost you 2 million. Even though it's like that's, that's just all, some bullshit, man. That difference yeah, is absolutely right. being pocketed by your commander, uh, th- and that's like would double or triple the official cost, and that money would go into somebody's pockets. That wasn't going to the military. This, of course, meant the richer you were, the faster you made rank, and the more important units you could command. For example, James Brundell, Lord Cardigan, who we'll talk about a little bit more, paid three million pounds for the rank of colonel in the Eleventh Hussars. As you can see. A lot of these commands and like interpersonal bickering and shit makes a lot more sense when you realize that like the guy ahead of you isn't better than you. He's just richer than you are, <laughs> which, of course, brings us to the topic of today's episode, the charge of the light brigade on the Northern Valley. At this point of the battle, no matter which units broke or held, everything was pretty much a stalemate. The British had broken the Russian attack, but the Russians had not been driven from the field. Also, the Russians like were not going to go and destroy this, the warehouses, but the Russians the planes were defeated, but they refused to retreat. They were still hanging out on the heights overlooking them. The British had gotten the upper hand and were preparing to launch a counterattack. A counterattack that the Russians could see coming because they, they held the ridge lines, they held the high ground. They could be like, hey, look, they're forming up to attack us. That's stupid. <laughs> Igor, come close. But also, the French held one of the ridge lines on a flank, so like they could also see what the Russians were doing and then tell the British, which they did. Everybody could see what everybody was doing in plain view. We're now, so cool. For some reason, Lord Raglan believed that the enemy had retreated in total disorder, despite scouts and the French pointing out that that the opposite was actually taking place. He knew if he wanted his tact to succeed, he needed his light brigade or light cavalry to chase down the artillery that was on the ridge line to and take it out before it could redeploy. That is in the concept of they were fleeing and taking their artillery with them, which was not happening. Furthermore, in a previous fight over the Causeway Heights, some British guns had been captured by the Russians, and he believed if he allowed those to be taken from the battlefield, it'd be just a big dishonor. Also, like, we need our cannons back. Now, the system of orders used by British commanders to direct units in action was simple. However, it was very vulnerable to missteps and confusion. Commanders could often see the entire battlefield and would give orders to a chief of staff who would write them down on a piece of paper. An aide-de-camp would then be used to deliver those written orders to whatever unit it was a written order to. Simple as that. It was literally passing a note. But 
Sometimes verbal orders would accompany written ones, which were not written down, which the aide-de-camp would use in a game of battlefield telephone. He would carry the letter, give it to him, and then give it the additional verbal orders on top, which hopefully he did not misremember. By rules of the time, verbal orders allowed for latitude of the lower command because they were not exact, while written ones were to be adhered to exactly and immediately without question. Now, the, the, the key here is the aide-de-camp was supposed to have the ability to fill in the gaps in any questions you had regarding either the verbal or written orders. So it, you couldn't be a dick about it. If the system worked, great. And that also probably meant the aide-de-camp relayed accurate orders to you. If it didn't, well, you get the charge of the light brigade. Oh, boy. Raglan quickly wrote an order and passed it to George Bingham, 3rd Earl of Lucan, which said, quote, Cavalry is to advance and take advantage of any opportunity to recover the heights, he instructed. They will be supported by the infantry, which have been ordered to advance on two fronts. There's a lot of information missing from that order. <laughs> and Lucan, to his credit, was very confused. The order made no sense. There were four different heights. It just said the heights. Which fucking heights am I attacking? Look around, you dipshit. <laughs> also, looking around, he didn't see any infantry either. And if they showed up, which fronts were they attacking? You just said two of them. You didn't say which ones. So he asked the aide who delivered the order all of these questions. Like, what, are, what does this mean? The aide had no idea because he also hadn't been told. So Lucan simply didn't pass the order. He figured if he just sat on his ass, the next order he got would be much more detailed. That did not happen. Raglan wrote another order, not clarifying a goddamn thing, and instead just screaming at him for not doing anything while reassuring him that now the French cavalry was on his left, moving to support his attack, which was not part of the original order at all, which made Lucan even more confused. This is when you just need to walk off the job site. Yeah. You know, I this, is, this is I <laughs> wildcat cavalry strike. Yeah. Now, this latest order made little more sense than the previous one. So Lucan asked for more information. But this time, Raglan had sent a guy named Captain Lewis Nolan to deliver the second order. And Nolan fucking hated Lucan. They had like personal problems going back years. Nolan knew, as far as anybody knew, knew exactly what the orders were supposed to be. When Lucan asked Nolan for more clarification, despite the fact that Lucan far outranked Nolan, Nolan pretty much told him to fuck off and attack immediately. <clears throat> oh, okay. Lucan asked angrily, quote, attack, attack what? What guns are you talking about? And Nolan angrily waved his arm in the direction of the entire North Valley and said, quote, there, my lord, there is your enemy. There are your guns. <laughs> oh, a little sass. Listen, just find a gun. Find any gun. <laughs> any gun. Pick a gun. Russian guns lined the heights to the left. More Russian guns were deployed to the heights to the right. And straight ahead were even more guns. These were the ones that he was actually supposed to attack. Enemy infantry also massed nearby uh, with the reformed Russian cavalry behind those guns. And anybody with eyes could see that this would have been fucking insane. For one, you'd have to charge straight down a valley, effectively volunteering yourself to be surrounded by enemy artillery on three sides to attack at the furthest point of the valley where infantry was also standing. It made no sense. 
So Lucan was at this point fucking furious. He hated his own boss and probably wanted to shoot Nolan. So he ordered his light brigade to advance in what has to be like a fuck you to his own boss. Yeah, like I'll listen to these orders, but you'll feel like a real asshole when I get killed. (laughs) Now, the light brigade formed into three lines for the charge. The first contained the 13th Dragoons, the 17th uh, Lancers, and behind were the 11th Hazars. Remember, the guy paid $3 million for this. In the second line, there's more Hussars and more Dragoons. Uh, these commanded by Cardigan. Remember the guy who spent 3 million pounds getting promoted? That guy is the one that ordered the brigade to advance at 11 a.m. Now, Captain Nolan, despite being a prick about this entire thing, actually chose to ride at the Light Brigade during the attack. But after about like 200 yards, he realized that nobody had any idea where they were going. Uh, they like They didn't understand what the orders were because remember... He didn't tell them. He just like told them to <laughs> yep. fuck themselves. Now, he rode out in front of the brigade's march, shouting and waving his sword towards Causeway Heights, which is where apparently the orders were supposed to be to attack. Um, now suddenly caught like concerned that someone would know what they were supposed to be doing. And while he was standing there shouting and waving without telling Lucan what the actual orders were, he then got killed by a cannon shell, which landed right next to him, meaning uh, the only guy who knew what the orders were were now dead. Uh, <laughs> well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> as soon as they set out, they were shelled and shot at by three sides. Their heavy cavalry component, led by Lucan, saw what was happening and immediately called off their charge as the light brigade carried on without him, which is, you know, good call, uh, in my opinion. Now, the French, who were uh, sitting on a nearby ridge, and remember, I'd been told that they were supposed to support this, had never been told that they were supposed to support any attack. And they watched this thing unfurl in front of them in abject horror, unsure of what the fuck the British were doing, because nobody had told them an attack was taking place. And certainly nobody told them they were supposed to support that attack. Uh, Raglan had either miscommunicated or simply lied to get Lucan on the charge. Now, this French detachment was commanded by a guy named Bosquet, and he ordered his light cavalry to attack one of the heights out of nowhere with no plan just to possibly take some pressure off the light brigade. So maybe they wouldn't all die. So far, the only decent command decision that has taken place was by, like, some French bystanders. (laughs) No, no, you're going to need the French, man. (laughs) (laughs) The light brigade got within range of the Russians, and their formation began to slip. Corporal James Nunnerly of the 7th Lancer saw the headless body of a sergeant strapped into a saddle, gripping his reins with his lance still pointed straight ahead. Oh, that <laughs> is <Beautiful. horrible. laughs> Headless horseman. Classic. It's spoopy. Oh. <laughs> then the horse is taken out by a cannonball and they both exploded. At only five yards away, the Russian cans opened fire with canister shot, tearing the entire front rank to pieces. But... Somehow, the weight of the charge kept going. The surviving horsemen charged over their friends' dead bodies and took the cannons, slaughtering the Russians who were manning them. In the middle of all of this, Cardigan, who was still in the middle of the charge, managed to get himself separated from his unit and surrounded by Cossacks, which is never a good thing. Now, this was when Prince uh, Rad... Sorry, Russians... Radiswil, uh, he's a Russian prince named Radiswil, who knew Cardigan personally jumped in and instead offered a bounty over him being taken alive in order to try to save his life. (laughs) This slowed the Cossacks down just enough that Cardigan's soldiers ran over and started shooting at the Cossacks, saving his ass. 
Cardigan did the thing that you would assume a, an officer of the nobility would do in the situation and got on his horse and abandoned his soldiers running as fast as he could back to the rear. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, this left his second Lord Paget to order a withdrawal back to the exact same valley they had just charged through. By this point, most of the survivors had lost their horses because they were shot out from under them or they were stabbed when they actually got to line or they're wounded or they've been knocked off their horses by an explosion. So most of the retreat was actually on foot. How exciting. Which is not good. Um, now, of course, that meant they were hit by cannon fire by three sides all over again. But then the Russian lancers, seeing the enemy running, charged down the hill and came after them. Those in the groups, they're able to force their way out, but most of the stragglers were lost. The final saving grace that probably saved the weight of this unit from being annihilated was the French cavalry who came and rescued them, mostly out of pity and horror. <laughs> I, mean, I will take being rescued out of pity and horror. Yeah. That's their sweet me being alive and me being dead. Yeah. <laughs> I will let some French cav trooper like make fun of me all he wants if it means me not getting stabbed in the face by a Cossack. Yep, Just out there admonishing all of them for for not walking off the job when it was clearly unsafe. <laughs> Sucker blue, you dumb morons! <laughs> this effectively ended the battle. Of the brigade, only one hundred and ninety-five answered the roll call upon the return. One hundred and eighteen had been killed, and one hundred and twenty-seven wounded, with another sixty captured, and three hundred horses died. Oh my oh, god, Jesus! Depending on your opinion on horses, this is either a good thing or a bad thing. Paget wrote a detailed letter about how bad Cardigan was at his job, as well as everyone else, and they should all resign or lose their commission. At that point, he immediately resigned on the spot and went home. Fair enough. Which is something that, like, there's a reason why they don't allow soldiers to do that. Yeah. Like, every time you have a shitty sergeant or a lieutenant, you're like, man, fuck this. I'm going home. Fuck you. The only way you can get someone to do shitty enlisted work is via compulsion. <laughs> now, the Russians were so confused by this attack, they thought the, the soldiers that had attacked them had lost their minds or had been drunk. Uh, with like Russian soldiers asking one POW how much they had to drink the night before, which is like has to be the greatest own at the time. Like accidental own. Yeah. Uh, that like that attack was so stupid. You have to be high or drunk or both. What the fuck? Yeah. What, <laughs> What are you doing? Why didn't you walk off the job? (laughs) (laughs) Just Roz in the back at the warehouse. Like, you should have been on strike with me. How are you? You don't have to do work that's unsafe. (laughs) Call OSHA. (laughs) OSHA has typhus. Um, Oh, shit. Yeah, OSHA probably does have typhus. Uh, Raglan made no future moves. Uh, This abandoned his plan to advance along the causeway heights the russians eventually withdrew at dusk officially ending the battle though no more attacks were taking place in the area nobody of course is ever held accountable for any of this legendary fuck up that instead got folded into a tale of heroism though if it makes anybody feel better raglan did die of cholera a year later um, so like right the, sometimes cholera is, is just Latin for right justice. Right equalizer, baby. <laughs> yeah. Now, his entire Sevastopol campaign was a complete failure, and he died knowing that. So, good. The only real win here is everyone in this battle and this entire war fucked up so badly 
that the British got rid of the commission purchasing system shortly thereafter, realizing that like, oh man. Um, and if this doesn't surprise you, the entire war turns out was pointless and for no reason. Um, and besides just me being like just the normal person that's not pro-war saying that this legally it meant nothing. Uh, in the end, around 1 million people died, uh, mostly from disease. Uh, about like, I think it was like four times more people died from disease than combat, which is high even for war back then. Um, the Russians signed a treaty in 1856 that ceded some territory, but most importantly, made them demilitarize the Black Sea. That is what Britain wanted, uh, kind of, was to kick the, the spreading Russian naval influence in the balls. However, by 1870, they would negotiate their way out of that little detail of the treaty, remilitarizing it all over again. <laughs> Yeah, meaning that all of this is for nothing, and history yeah. is one big dim, dumb flat circle. Um, and this would immediately spark more conflict and war. Um, so yeah, yeah, this is right. literally for nothing, literally and legally for nothing, which is not often I can say that. Now, gentlemen, we have a thing on this show called questions from the Legion. Um, now this is a little bit different. We didn't pull it like I didn't have a, like a lot of time um, to solicit people for. Questions that were not military related because, you know, with Nick gone and Liam not being a veteran or someone in the military, like there's not a lot of the military type things that he knows. So like, sorry, Joe, right. my fault. <laughs> oh, it's good. It's cool. Thanks, Joe. The military <laughs> is when the government makes you fight, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's right. Um, <laughs> or normally just stand around a parking lot and jerk off a lot. That's what um, I do anyway. Uh, that's why I'm a sergeant. Uh but uh, uh, the reason, so because of that, I've had to um, skip over a lot of the questions from Legion because almost all of them have to do with military stuff. But this time, I was like, "Hey, Roz is going to be on the show." It's like uh, just as a reminder that this doesn't have to be military related, right? Um, and I have explicitly engineering related questions now <laughs> that I cannot answer. So, what is the most hostile infrastructure work you can think of? And uh, like, where is it? Like, and other than saying just like roads, uh, <laughs> like, you mean like what the is host- the most, was the most the ho- hostile infrastructure? Like, it was designed because people. Just, it was not designed with people involved. Um, I mean, you know, other than like you know the obvious state answers, of New Jersey. The whole state of New Jersey is a good candidate, right? The there. whole state of New Jersey, <laughs> yeah, or Especially Ohio, South Jersey. Um, you know, and uh, you know, that's just an environment where if you are, if you are not in a car, you'll be murdered. Um, you know, rather <laughs> like infrastructure, which is, which is actively hostile to human life. I'd have to say stuff like having to work on transmission towers. That's, that's a job that kills people constantly. Cell phone towers and stuff like, like that. Uh, no, like the really tall radio towers. I didn't know those killed so many people. Oh uh, yeah. You gotta, oh, you yeah. gotta send someone up there to change the light bulb and work on the equipment every once in a while. Um, I did know that. I just assumed yeah. that that was generally like one of those jobs that's safer than you think. Uh, but uh, I guess no, not. no, it's actually as dangerous as as it appears. Outstanding, <laughs> um, <laughs> great. Yeah, uh, as the non, definitely non engineer of, of of the current gathering of hosts here. Um, if I just think a hostile infrastructure work, honestly, like I'm sitting in Hawaii right now, uh, and I have to think that the the Hawaiian highway system in particular. Well, not the Hawaiian highway system. It's an American highway system. Yeah. The American highway system in Hawaii is mm-hmm. actively hostile to everybody that doesn't drive a car. Um, and there's no public transit here for the most part. So like, I can only speak for this particular island. I have not been to any others yet. 
and uh, Oahu. However, it's a very small landmass. So when you build gigantic highway systems, that means like you can't really walk anywhere without having to cross one of these monstrosities, right? Oh, yeah. Right. It's insane. Not to mention that the highway itself is dog shit. It's kind of like the Houston highway, just different. Like the Houston highway is so comically large at this point that if you are not securely in a car, you will die. Yes. <laughs> and even then, you might still die. So the, the answers are New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, the answer is New Jersey and everywhere in the United States. <laughs> Honestly, like it's been a long time since I've traveled. Uh, like I went to uh, Iceland a couple years ago, uh, but Iceland doesn't really have public transit because it's very, very small. Reykjavik is a very small walkable town mm-hmm. and it doesn't really have a, a necessity for public transit. Though they, I think they sell buses and stuff like that. Yeah, I think they got a big bus network. Yeah, <laughs> a couple months ago, I went to Armenia, which you know is also a very small country. Most population lives in one area, and even then, the city's incredibly walkable and has an underground metro line. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> We're losing the goddamn Yerevan. It, yeah, hundred percent. Like, yeah. I, I, and the metro's fine. I mean, sure, it's old, but like, it works, and it's like twenty cents. It's one of those good Soviet metros, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is. It, it just has like slightly newer trains, I believe, but not by much. Not by much yet. Yeah, but even then, in comparison to if I wanted to go somewhere, since I don't live in, I like I live in Honolulu, but I don't live in like downtown Honolulu because like you can't afford to live in downtown Honolulu. I have to get in my car and I have to drive at least fifteen minutes, and in that fifteen minutes, I have to like merge into three different highways and then go back into town. It's just obscene. Uh, but I mean, that's it's you know, the same thing goes for pretty much every metro area now, right? Anyway, this is the plug zone. Plug your show. Liam and I have a show. It's called, Well, There's Your Problem. It's a podcast about engineering disasters with slides. Um, it's on YouTube and also on podcasting apps. Uh, y- y- you should listen to it or watch it because it's good. Yeah. Uh, actually, recently, I w- watched the very first uh, YouTube version of your podcast. I normally only listen to it on my podcast app. Because there was the military slideshow one, and you cannot listen to that one of the podcast. It'll make <laughs> yeah. no sense. Uh, and it's like it not. I don't know any other shows that do that. Like it's very very cool, and people should go listen to it. Also, I have a sport, a Philly sports podcast now called. Uh, oh God, what's it called? Oh, ten thousand losses. <laughs> go listen to that. You just, you I know four of name. those losses off the top of my head. You just stole the name right <laughs> off of Hussein there. <laughs> yeah. <I did. laughs> Gentlemen, thank you for coming on the show. It is always a joy. I'm glad to flip things. I've been into Well, There's a yeah. Problem, I think, three times now. So it was, it was yes. nice to talk at Rods rather than the other way around. And until next time, uh, don't, do, don't get typhus. And I feel like we've used that one before. Yeah. Still avoid it, though. Don't invade avoid- Crimea. That one's topical. Yeah, don't invade Crimea. Go. Russia.